Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4. So as I had explained last, uh, last time we did this, it's a two-part mini-series that I'm doing on Bible geography. And so in John chapter 4, from verse 1 to 7 is where I want to start, start off. Because believe it or not, the story, this woman at the well story, contains a lot of geography. So I want to start off from there, and then we'll move on to uh, more Bible geography. And also feel free to pause, because this is a broadcast after all. So feel free to pause whenever you need to. And uh, hopefully we'll learn something today. So uh, verse 1, John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weird, wearied excuse me, with his uh, journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now, when we started this series, I spoke to you about also the accuracy of the Bible. These places just now that were mentioned, they're not mentioned out of accident. God meant to put them there. Those are tiny details that God wanted you as the reader to understand. So they're important. But for this message or for this uh, service, I want to take a look more into the land of Israel. Last time we looked at more of the land surrounding Israel, but today we're going to look at Canaan land itself, Israel's land itself. All right, so before we begin, let's go into a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day, and I thank you that uh, you gave us your word, you gave us your Bible, and how accurate it is, how it's been recorded with, with no mistakes in it. I pray, Father, that uh, we'd be able to take something from this uh, little study, this little survey almost, and pray, Father, that we as well would be able to study, our, study your word and to be able to give answers when, when they're asked of us. I pray, Lord, for your honor and your glory today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you look at Israel, uh, one of the main things you'll notice is that Israel has uh, some waterways. It has some water in the middle, exactly in the middle. And actually, that's the way it's been divided even when it, came, when it comes to geography. There's the east and the west of Israel, right? So down the middle there, you'll see the Jordan River. You'll see uh, the Dead Sea. You go at the top there, you'll see the Sea of Galilee and all. But let's talk about the eastern side for a moment, uh, the eastern side of Israel. The eastern side of Israel is known as Gilead. And most of the, of the time, you'll see Gilead talked about in the Old Testament. 
Now, mind you, Gilead is mentioned 114 times throughout your Bible. Sometimes it's a person's name. Sometimes it's actually mentioning the mountain that is in Gilead, which is the area of the east of Israel. Or it's mentioning that whole part of, Israel, uh, of Gilead. All right. So some of the spots that you may find it is when you talk about the story of Jacob. And when Rachel ends up stealing the idols from her father Laban, she and Jacob end up uh, fleeing into Gilead. In Genesis 31, 21, it, ta- it talks about that. Another thing you might uh, have seen or noticed is when in the life of Joseph, the Ishmaelite slave traders, right? So these Ishmaelites that were coming, they were passing through Gilead. And that's where, uh, that's how the, uh, the brothers end up meeting these slave traders because they were passing through Gilead. Now, if you remember from last time, we talked about two different highways, right? There was the way of the sea and then there was the king's highway. The king's highway is the one that passed through Gilead, through the east of, of Israel. So, you can almost deduce that the, those Ishmaelite traders were going through the king's highway down to Egypt. And that's how they took Joseph into Egypt as well. Perhaps. This is, I'm, I'm only theorizing. Right? Now, Another thing about Gilead is that it was mainly settled by three main tribes. It was the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and then there was the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's called a half-tribe because half of their tribe is found in the east. The other half is found in the west. Okay, So this half-tribe was on the east side. You can see this story in Numbers 32, verse 29, and all the way to 40. And that's where it mentions the little divisions there. Okay. Now, somebody who is very famous from the land of Manasseh, or the tribe, that half-tribe of Manasseh in the Gilead side, was uh, Gideon. And in fact, you even see that the men that Gideon had found were uh, from Gilead, or around the Mount Gilead. In Judges 7, verse 3, you can see that happening. Another famous person is uh, Jephthah, the judge Jephthah. And interestingly enough, even his father was named Gilead. So his father was named Gilead. He was from the land of Gilead. He was a Gileadite. That's how much of a Gilead he was. (laughs) So there was a lot of people, there's a lot of information about Gilead throughout your Bible that you will see. But now you know, when it talks about Gilead, it's talking about the east side of the land of Israel. Okay? Now, as you're going through it, you notice also that there, that division part, right? What is dividing the east and the west? Well, it was the waters. The waters were the main things that were dividing it. And the waters start off all the way up north of Israel. North of Israel, there was a place called the Mount Hermon. But uh, there, there are mentions throughout your Bible where it talks about the waters of Mount Hermon. Well, Mount Hermon, you can see that through, as it goes down, the waters as they go down, there's a spot named um, Merom. And these were, these were uh, little, kind of like marshes, kind of like swampy areas. But the water flowed down through Merom 
and then it went into Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and then it follows through with the Jordan River, and then it ends up in the Dead Sea. Okay? So that's how usually the water, those water uh, follows through, and that's, that's what creates the border between the west and the east. Now, for the western side of Israel, the west is divided usually into three different parts, three different provinces uh, in Israel, right? Just a little bit about the Dead Sea here. Dead Sea is probably the biggest thing that's um, mentioned, or at least you can see uh, right away, that's the biggest uh, area of water inside of Israel. And the interesting thing about the Dead Sea is that um, it's, it's actually the lowest point, uh, lowest landmass in the world. It's 400 meters below sea level. And if you think about it, 400 meters below sea level, that's actually very, very low. You can, you can almost fit the entire Empire State Building on, uh, where, on the land of the Dead Sea, and it would be on par with the sea level. So that, that, that's just to give you a scale of how, uh, how deep or how low that point is. Another thing about the Dead Sea is that it has no water coming out of it. Okay, so just some little facts about the Dead Sea. Oh, also, the wa its water is highly concentrated with a lot of salt. It has a very high salt to water ratio. So the western side of Israel, as I had mentioned, it's divided into three provinces. And just for the sake of t uh, telling you, you know, the east is Gilead. The west is, I'm going to call it Palestine. And I'm not saying that this is Palestine, the political Palestine, as in the state of Palestine. I'm just saying it in a geographical way. Geographically, the west of Israel is known as Palestine. Okay? So this is probably where 70% of the action is happening in your Bible. Uh, most of the action you'll see, or most of the things happening in your Bible, the stories are taking place in the western side of Israel. So... Uh, just for the sake of time here, I'm just going to call it Palestine or West Israel, if that makes sense. So as you're going down from the West of Israel, the first province you'll see at the top there is Galilee. And Galilee, believe it or not, as much as that name comes up mostly in the New Testament, it is actually mentioned even in the Old Testament, but it goes by different name, by a different name. Specifically, the Sea of Galilee, that's the biggest, that's the most interesting spot, the most significant spot of Galilee. The Sea of Israel, or the, sorry, the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, the Sea of Galilee is known as Kinneroth. Kinneroth. And it's mentioned in Numbers 34, verse 11, in Joshua 11, 20, uh, 11 verse 2, and then Joshua 12, verse 3. And that was the Hebrew name for Galilee. Okay? Now, the only time that Galilee, the word Galilee, is mentioned as Galilee, and you'll see it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. If you want to take a look at it, Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1, in, King, in the King James Bible, it says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. So that's one of the only spots in the Old Testament where the name Galilee actually comes up, other than Kinneroth or Kinnereth. Okay? And there are so many different um, theories as to why it, would, it may have been finally called Galilee, but it's also mentioned as Galilee of the nations. One of the theories is that during this time, when Isaiah was actually writing this, you remember in Isaiah 6, Hezekiah passes away. If it's talking about Hezekiah, then that was during the time when northern Israel was already occupied by Assyria, right? So only the southern kingdom was left. Isaiah was in the southern kingdom. He was writing this down. So he knew other nations were occupying the north, which was where Galilee was. So maybe that's why he wrote Galilee of the Nations. That's just a theory, though. I'm not, uh, not saying that's uh, exactly what happened. So another place you'll see it, uh, see the name of Galilee come with a different name is in Luke 5.1. In Luke 5.1, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. Okay? The word Gennesaret is a transliteration of Kinneroth into Greek. From, uh, yeah, into Greek. So, my little theory, even for this, is that, well, Luke himself, he was a Greek. And the only, only spots you talk, uh, you know, you see Luke coming in is when he talks in first person in the book of Acts and such. So, my theory is that, well, Luke decided he's going to call it by its, uh, by its Greek name. Another one who, uh, who mentions it in a different name is uh, in John chapter 6, verse 1. So the Apostle John himself also calls the, the Sea of Galilee by a different name. He calls it the Lake Tiberias. Okay? And that could be also because John was maybe trying to, ta- uh, trying to be with, uh, with the Romans. He was trying to emphasize with, uh, emphasize with the Romans or empathize with the Romans, I should say. So, something significant about the Sea of Galilee is, other than the fact that it was also the, around the area where Jesus grew up, uh, the Sea of Galilee had also many fishing businesses. Uh, one significant one is the business that Peter, James, and John were doing. You can see it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Something else about the Sea of Galilee, it's... It's around, the sea, around this sea that the feeding of the 5,000 took place. In Luke chapter 9, verse 10 to 17. The feeding of the 4,000 also took place around this area. In Matthew 5, all the way to Matthew 7, the whole Sermon on the Mount, that mount may have been in this same area as well. The cities surrounding Galilee, which were Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, those were all places that Jesus ministered in where he performed miracles. But all these cities ended up not believing, uh, believing Jesus. They ended up uh, never even repenting, according to, uh, the, according to Matthew 11. It's also the sea that Jesus ended up walking on. 
it's also the sea that Jesus commanded and stopped the storm. So there's a lot of things that can be said about just the province of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, but let's just move on a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Samaria at the end, but so let's move on to Judea. Judea is the southernmost province of, uh, of Israel. And in Judea, there are some of the more significant and more important cities are found as well. Them being Bethel, uh, Bethlehem, Hebron, and of course, the capital, Jerusalem, right? And specifically, even Jerusalem, David is the one who ended up capturing Jerusalem. It wasn't called Jerusalem at first. It was just called the city of, Je- uh, of Jebus. Or, um, yeah, the city of Jebus. And the thing is, in 2 Samuel 5, verse 7, or parallel to that, 1 Chronicles eleven five, you see how it was the Zion Hill. And David ends up capturing it and calling it the city of David. Eventually, Jerusalem. Right? And the spot at the top of that hill, the Mount Zion, the top of that hill there, today there's that rock, the Dome of the Rock. You may have noticed it. Every time you see a, um, a panoramic photo of Israel, you'll see that Dome on the Rock. It's, it's that glittering dome uh, in gold. But that is where many scholars claim may have been where the, the first temple was. As you may know, that first temple was, uh, was built on a, uh, a hill. Some, a lot of them speculate that that was where uh, Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. So that was Mount Moriah, maybe. Others have, uh, others have also speculated, perhaps... That's the spot also in uh, 2 Samuel 24, the plains of uh, Arauna, the man who gave uh, or sold that land to David so that he can build the temple on that. Solomon ended up building that temple though. So that's Judea. There's a lot more about Judea, a lot, lot more. But uh, for time's sake, let's move on here to the middle. So we talked about Galilee, where Jesus grew up. We talked about Judea, specifically Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. And then he did end up, ended up going through Samaria. And in fact, we read, uh, we read about it even when we were talking about in uh, John chapter 4. So let's go back to John chapter 4. And Samaria, I could say it's like the black swan when it comes to these provinces, these western provinces of Israel. It's kind of like the black swan. It was much hated by the New Testament Jews. And there is a lot of history to do with that. There's a lot of history to do with why the Jews hated Samaria. The city of Samaria, specifically, it had become the spot where Jeroboam, the Jeroboam was the, that in a sense, the second king, right? He was the guy who ended up uh, ruling the northern part of Israel. And Jeroboam ended up building that golden calf, that golden calf, and he built it in the city of Samaria, and then he built another in, uh, in Dan. So, thing is, God ended up using the Assyrians 
to judge northern Israel. And along with the judging, what ended up happening was that the Assyrians and the Jews that were in the north of Israel, they ended up intermingling and they ended up mixing. Right? So now you had this mixed race of Jew and Assyrian. And to the southern Jews, who were pure Jews, in a sense, they didn't like that. They hated that. And some of them became very self-righteous about it and trying to pull God into this picture and saying that, oh, these people have sinned and they're, they're forever condemned because of their race or something like that. And then you can see it here where the confusion happens Knowing that little piece of history that the Assyrians were the ones that took Samaria, you can see it here in John chapter 4 and verse 20 where, where this confusion came in. This is the woman at the well talking where she says, Our fathers worshipped in, in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's making a comparison here with the city of Samaria and then the city of Jerusalem here. Right? So two areas of worship because they were confused with the fact that there was that golden calf in that, in that area of Samaria. And then the Jews were worshiping mainly in Jerusalem in the temple. Right? So now you have that background. Now you can see part of that story where it's significant, where geography now plays, plays a role of why she was confused, why she would have answered that way. But now you know also what happens next. And Jesus ended up witnessing to her. When you look at the whole story, Jesus decided to make his way from Judea through Samaria into Galilee. Most Jews would have tried to go around. That's how usually it was done. When Jews wanted to go from Judea, which was the southern part, to Galilee, they would end up going through Gilead. See how geography played a place, right? So in this case, though, it would have been much simpler to go through Samaria, but because of the hate that the Jews had towards Samaria, they wanted to always go around it, okay? But Jesus, he's not just a God of a few people. He's the Lord of all. And he knew why he wanted to go through Samaria. And as I had mentioned, these little, these little details, these little places, they are not there by accident, right? God wanted to communicate those things for us as well, even in our society today. John is the only one, John, uh, the Apostle John is the only one who bothered to talk about this story, the woman at the well. And the truth is, the story actually flies in the face of many of the controversial topics of today. Many controversial things can be seen from this little story that was written nearly 2,000 years ago. You see, it shows you that Christ is not an advocate for racism. Christ cares for every single race on earth. He cares even about the Samaritan woman, and he cares about every single ethnicity, every single nation around the world. He cares about every individual person. It also flies in the face of sexism. 
the person she, he talked with was a woman. And uh, you may say, well, that's kind of sexist. But you see, the ancient, uh, these ancient people, these ancient societies, they didn't treat women the way we treat them today. In fact, there was a lot of, there was a lot of injustice, a lot of prejudice happening. But the fact that he spoke to the woman and not the men in the city of Samaria is a big deal. Another thing it, it flies in the face of is uh, the notion of societal class or social classes. This woman found herself at the lowest of social classes. She was perhaps hated. We, we kind of have this idea that she may have come in the midday to do that work. It was, it was kind of customary for a woman to be uh, drawing water from the well for her family. It was kind of given the job to the woman usually in the, that type of society. Well, she did it when no one was wanting to do it. What I mean is no one comes midday to draw water, but she did because perhaps she was ashamed of what she was doing. Perhaps she didn't want to talk with people, right? She wanted it. She wanted to do it stealthily. So this story may be controversial even today. In her culture, this woman may have wanted to do many things, but then her whole story was changed when Jesus came in. You know, one of the things perhaps even amongst Christians and in Christian circles, and this, is, this happens very subconsciously, it's most of the time it's, it's happening in our minds. We know it's happening in our minds only after the fact. But we tend to be very judgmental. What do I mean that, by that is that we tend to place a prejudice on many people without ever getting to know them. We say, oh, this person will never listen to me. Oh, that person, I don't think they'll be open towards what I have to say. And the thing is, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, why not? Because did we even first try to talk with the person? You see, I have this little story here. And it's not a little story. It's actually a big story. But I'll try to summarize it as best as I can. There's a young boy named David. And David, he grew up in Arizona in the States, and he was born to a good family. They weren't a Christian family, but it was still a good family. Well, David, he, he started showing a little bit of different type of character, different type of behavior from the rest of, you know, the children of his age. But David was also curious. He had this scientific type of mind where he just wanted to explore and explore and explore. But amongst this curiosity came the dark side of curiosity. He tried to look into what would happen if, and then he started breaking moral codes of society. He would try to break the law. He would get into trouble and, get, uh, and break the law. He got into vandalism and breaking and entering and all kinds of things throughout his teen years because of this curiosity he had. Well, one day, the curiosity really took a turn for the worst. 
what David ended up doing was he grabbed a hammer and he bashed in the head, his father's skull in. His father was sent to the hospital and David was taken to jail. Now David, he was an atheist. And he thought that because he was much better than the law, that the law was for these people with, uh, with these uh, lower moral codes and he was a much higher person. So he made his own ethical, ethical rules and his own, own morality. Well, while in prison, David met a guy named Randy. And the thing about Randy was that Randy came from the Navy and he ended up in prison. So David asked him why. And what ended up happening is Randy said that he had been witnessed to while he was in the Navy. And after he had gotten saved, one of the things that ended up happening is he wanted to uh, kind of uh, get, get, some things, uh, get, them, get some things right in his life, such as the 21 felons that he had committed. And he confessed to them, to the judge, and the judge sentenced, sentenced him to prison. And he happened to be in the same prison with David. So as David and Randy were getting to know each other, when David found out that uh, Randy was a Christian, one of the things he tried to do was always to scorn him and to make fun of him. He would get into debates with him. And he thought he was a better person than Randy, but Randy was always giving him a run for his money, right? When there would be prison, ball, uh, prison brawls, you would see Randy praying that the prison brawl would stop while David was enjoying these prison brawls. Well, eventually, Randy told David that he was going to start fasting. He said that he was going to fast because during prison time, what else are you going to do? Right? You have all this time, and once you leave prison, well, you're going to get into a job and something like that, and you can't fast like you do. So he started fasting for seven days. Well, David, he wanted to win at something against Randy. So uh, what David ended up doing is trying to fast longer than Randy could. Well, one day, Randy decided he was going to fast for 40 days, and David tried to beat him. Apparently on the 11th day, David was unable to even stand on his own. So him being uh, in prison with this antisocial disorder, the prison guards thought, well, uh, maybe he's trying to kill himself or something. Eventually they put him in isolation. While David was in isolation, he started thinking. And he, his mind was just thinking. More and more, he wanted to get his revenge on, on Randy. He wanted to beat Randy so bad. And he thought, well, maybe it's because he's not smarter than Randy. So he started studying the Bible for himself. He studied the resurrection. And after he was facing this overwhelming evidence for the resurrection, he started getting into Bible studies and more and more and more. And the Holy Spirit was starting to talk to David. Randy was just doing his own thing. He was doing what Christ would want him to do while in prison. But David, with this rage to want to beat Randy, that 
pushed him towards these Bible studies. Eventually, David ended up getting saved. David left prison and he thought, well, his whole life is ruined. He was 20 by the time he was done prison. But he thought his whole life was ruined because he'd gotten saved, but he had all this criminal past behind him. He thought he could do nothing. Well, he ended up going uh, for a degree in philosophy, and he was studying at a, at, a, uh, at a college. And he met this Muslim guy in college. And this Muslim guy was trying to convert David to Islam. And they got into a debate, many debates. This Muslim guy, he said that apparently no Christian has ever been able to answer his questions. But David was. And more and more, David was starting to put evidence and evidence before this Muslim guy. It took nearly three years for this Muslim guy to turn around. Many people who watched David witness to this Muslim guy always kept saying that he was wasting his time, that there was no use to try and witness to this Muslim guy because he had hardened his heart. He, he, didn't want, uh, he didn't want anything to do with Christ. But David never gave up because he remembered how Randy never gave up on him either. Sooner or later, this Muslim man ended up getting saved as well. And after this Muslim guy finished his doctorate in that same college, in that same university, he wanted to follow Christ fully. He went into apologetics, got his degree, and he ended up working at RZIM. This is a true story. The Muslim man that I'm talking about, his name is Nabil Qureshi. And perhaps you are familiar with the name. Nabil Qureshi's testimony has spoken to so many Muslims, millions of Muslims throughout the years. And his testimony has brought many Muslims to Christ. And Nabil, he was diagnosed with uh, stomach cancer back in 2016. And then he passed away a year later. But that just goes to show that Christ wasn't done with all three of them. The Muslim guy, David, who was an antisocial man, and even Randy, who was in the Navy, who thought he could get away from his sin. But imagine if the people who took the time to try and witness to each three of these people had a prejudice in their heart. That, oh, that person was not going to listen, right? Because all these three guys, they showed patience throughout their witnessing. They showed that faithfulness will prevail in the end. For Christians today, I want to give you a challenge. Two challenges, actually. My first challenge is, don't take your Bible for granted. The the little details that God keeps giving you throughout your Bible, throughout your Bible reading, study them. Study them so that you can have an answer. When people ask you questions, don't give them words of men. Give them God's word. That's the more powerful answer. And then my second challenge is, let's stop having prejudices. I know it's easier said than done, because it's most of the time it's happening in our subconscious, where we're 
where we're thinking things or the devil puts an idea in our mind that somebody is not going to respond to what we have to say. But let's never give up on that. Put those prejudices aside. Put those thoughts aside. And let's face these issues. Let's face the people. You know, Jesus Christ never died for just a single group of people. He died for the black person and the white person. He died for the brown and the yellow and the orange and the red. He died for the male and the female. And even for the unknown gender people. He died for the old and the young. He died for the rich and the poor. And he died for the good and the bad. We need to be more faithful in our witnessing and we need to put away our prejudices just like Jesus did when he faced the woman at the well. I hope that this little study, this little survey can be useful to you even in your Bible study throughout your, uh, your next few studies in your life. Uh, I know I'm not an expert and hopefully this would have spoken to you. But as Christians, let's never find ourselves with our pants down. Let's never be caught with our pants down. Let's always be at the front forefront of these modern issues so that we can give a biblical answer to people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you gave us your word. And I thank you, Father, for even this little study and as much of how much of an encouragement it is to hear about Christians who stood up, who were patient in their, in their testimony, who were patient in their witnessing. I pray, Father, that every one of us would be patient in our witnessing as well. We know, Lord, that we, we see unsaved people all around us. And a lot of times we ourselves have, this, uh, have impressions of these people. And we forget that... The, uh, they are people that you had died for. I pray, Father, that we would always keep this in mind and that we'd be always able to give a proper witness to be able to answer from the, your word. Help us, Lord, to use your word for your honor and your glory and bless us today, Lord. I pray for anyone behind on the other side of this broadcast that they would, be, uh, they would have been spoken to and that... Uh, they themselves would be able to make that decision to, to apply themselves more towards Bible study and towards, uh, towards uh, having an answer for what they believe. I thank you, Lord, and I praise you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Tim. Well, thank you, Pastor Deving, for that message this evening. And at this time, uh, we're going to transition to our offering time. So as the music begins to play, just ask the Lord how you can give, whether it's online right now, through texting, through the website, or you plan on stopping by later this week. Let's just uh, give God the glory and let's, let's honor him through our tithes and give, givings at this time.